Well, as we come to think about God's word this morning, let's join together and pray. Heavenly Father, as we give you thanks for your word that we can read of the great stories of the Old Testament, we thank you for these stories and thank you that they will lead us once more to consider your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us as we do that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to this next event in the life of Elisha the prophet, having considered something of his call, his initial miracles, some opposition, some more miracles, and then last week probably the most significant miracle so far seen in raising the dead boy in the middle part of chapter 4. That last miracle was significant in more than one way, not just in the greatness of the event itself, but also the one that clearly identified Elisha as being a type of Jesus, the Messiah, who was to come. The same could be said of these next miracles we are looking at this morning, which also remind us in many ways so clearly of the kinds of things that Jesus would do. Now in the background of these events from Elisha's life, let's Note again that he ministered to the nation of Israel in a time of spiritual decline. Even though he served a nation who technically were the Lord's own people, that fact was very much hanging by a thread. Ninth century BC Israel had a strong tendency to reject faith in the Lord their God and cling to a much more acceptable version of religion in the worship of Baal. This idolatrous behaviour was by no means new to Elisha's time, but had been around for many years, as Israel's spiritual decline progressed, ever so gradually, like a creeping wild vine, slowly wrapping its tendrils around whatever it could, wherever and whenever people became slack in their thinking about the God who had saved them and brought them into this land. Not hard to see that it's the same pretty much in Australian culture too. We'll think more on that later. But for now, let's note that the same trend of decline in our land, when and where churches try to make Christianity comfortable in order to make it acceptable, continues. On the topic of comfortable Christianity, C.S. Lewis once wrote these words, I didn't turn to religion to make me happy. I knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. How true that is. The truth is that what Jesus taught is so radically uncompromising and so pointed about sin and repentance and judgment and hell that the moment you abandon such themes and replace them with other things like rights and justice and tolerance, then all you end up doing is domesticating God. Turning the fearsome Aslan, a saying I've mentioned C.S. Lewis already, into a tame pussycat who is quite acceptable to everyone. And this is why, in part, these stories in 1 and 2 Kings of Elisha were written as warnings to God's people in every age not to go off the boil but to keep faithful and watchful. And what we have this morning are two events which both centre around the same topic, 
probably a topic that's a favourite of yours as it is mine, food. And both stories are linked by this topic, the first telling us of an occasion where the food was spoiled and the second where there simply wasn't enough food. Let's note then the events and that which we learn from them. First consider verses 38 to 41, where through Elisha, God's people were saved from a dangerous poison. The episode itself is pretty straightforward, although appearing a little strange. Elisha is back in Gilgal at a time when there is a terrible famine, but God's work has to continue, perhaps more so than ever, in getting his message out so the nation can repent and be restored to God who is their true provider, and then maybe the famine will be eased. And so the prophets are called together for a meeting. But since it's not only an army which marches on its stomach, Elisha gets his servant to get to put together a stew. One of the prophets, full of good intentions, wants to help out, and so he gathers together a few herbs from the surrounding fields, and that's when he sees something which he thinks will make the stew into a master chef special. He spots a wild vine which appeared to be edible. So back he goes, does his bit, chop up the pieces, puts them in the stew without anyone having a clue as to what ingredients had been added. However, what seemed to be a great find and just the extra zip the stew needed proved to be the exact opposite. It was toxic. As verse 40 says, they began to eat it. They cried out, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. The whole thing had been ruined and their lives put at risk. And what happens? Well, as usual, God, through his appointed servant, Elisha, comes to the rescue by adding some flour. The basic ingredient of bread, which, as we shall see particularly in the next story, symbolised the wholesome personal provision of God, with the result that the stew, by a miracle, was edible again. So what's the point of all that? At a surface level, we can note that it was the next in Elisha's miracles. But we can also note without pushing the text too far, that this is a story full of significance, speaking about Israel's relationship with God, what it was and what it should be. We note that there was a famine in the land. That was no accident. Through Moses, God had warned the Jews, as they were about to enter the promised land, that if they kept his laws, there would be blessing. But if they turned their back on him and went after foreign gods, idols, there would be a price to pay. That's what was happening. The popular religion of the day was the worship of the fertility god Baal, who was meant to provide an abundant harvest. And that's where the significance of the addition of the fruit of a wild vine to the pot is noted. Notice that it's a wild vine. Now in the Bible, the image of a vine is used to symbolise God's people. And by the time of Jesus, it had become a national symbol akin to something like the thistle is to Scotland. 
but the fruit of this wild vine was not edible and was poisonous, creating for us a picture of what was happening in Israel at the time. Instead of being like the choice vine, they were meant to be as the people of God. Israel was more like a wild vine through their idolatry. Adding Baal to the list of gods they served, even replacing God with Baal altogether. And always in the scriptures, whenever God's people do this, that is, go down the path of compromise in relation to the first commandment, well, you know what happens. It comes back and it bites them hard. With each addition to the pot, there's a little more poison added. And the answer? Well, in this case, the actions of Elisha, the man of God, were quite simple. He added flour. Flour which was basic to the staple diet for life, bread to the pot, which miraculously negated the effects of the toxins, providing for us an image of what God had called his prophets to do within Israel, to counter the attractive but false religion of Baal by the addition of his word into the scene. For if we take the fruit of the wild vine as symbolic of error, we can think upon the flower as symbolic of God's truth. And if you think about it, you'll agree that that has always been God's appointed means of countering error and spiritual decline. To use his word, however unpopular it may seem. Jesus most certainly declared God's word. The apostles did also, as the prophets did in the Old Testament. Timothy was told to preach it. Paul spoke of false teachers, describing them as evil men and impostors who will go from bad to worst, and then added for Timothy's sake, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. Preach the word. It's the task of all of God's people to let the light of God's word shine in all its fullness, even though others with all the goodwill in the world will be urging us to move on and to add something more, a new insight, a new method, a new experience and put it in the pot. One of the greatest temptations that you and I will face now is to forego the belief that what God has said in his word is enough that it is not only insufficient, but also that it is out of date and irrelevant. It's not easy to resist the force of the argument of the world that we live in, where the word of God is not revered, while the wisdom of men is lifted higher than it. And it's easy to go and pick up some of the fruit of the wild vine and let what you see, which seems attractive, Determine what you believe. And no doubt there are those who are easily fooled. Don't be. Not all that is presented as truth is truth. Some of it is poison. And there are many still both inside and outside the church who cannot discern what is edible or poisonous teaching. Even when by all appearances... The justice, the morals, the peace, the ethics promoted seem to be good, but because they're not rooted in anything solid or the truth, they end up only causing more problems. A saying 
all that glitters is not gold, applies well to false teaching as well as the things of the world. The call is to stick with what God has revealed in his word, truths that have stood the test of time and changed the world. It was believing and practising these truths that led Luther to nail his theses to the door. George Whitfield in the Wesleys to see revival come to many parts of the UK and William Wilberforce to cope with hatred and vilification as he sought to set the slaves free. It is by sticking to these truths that God adds his flower to a contaminated world and so brings about lives that are changed forever. This morning, resolve with me to stick with this truth and be true to it, come what may. Secondly, let's consider verses 42 to 44, where we note how through Elisha, God's people were satisfied by a divine provision. This part of the story looks back and looks forward for its true significance. A man came from Baal Shalisha, which, as the name suggests, was one of the main centres of the Baal cult. Yet this man is a believer, a follower of the true God, which is why he brings loaves to the prophet to share. Elisha tells him to give it to the people to eat. Somewhat bemused by this, the servant knows enough about logistics to work out that 20 loaves is not going to go far amongst a 100 people. Elisha gives the command to do it, for he exclaims, This is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. So he did, and they had plenty left over according to the word of the Lord. The incident looks back to another critical time in the history of Israel in the book of Exodus when they were being brought out of Egypt. This too was a time when God's people were grumbling and thinking about their stomachs with a very selective memory. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, they said. There we had sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. So we read in Exodus that God in his kindness provided a special bread from heaven, manna, and they all had all they wanted. Well, it is the same God who provides for his people in this story, but this time through Elisha. And he would do it again through Jesus. We read that this morning in John chapter 6. How when one even greater than Elisha came and fed 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish. And again, there was plenty left over, challenging the mindset of the disciples who had such meagre rations to share, but who soon learned that meagre offerings placed in the hands of the Lord Jesus bring much blessing. Of course, the miracle highlights the fact that God's supply is well and truly unlimited, and also proved again that the miracles Elisha performed proved him to be the man of God, just as the miracles Jesus performed proved that he was not just a man of God, but the Son of God. And yet, we can take that even one step more, can't we? See later in that same chapter of John, chapter 6, after the feeding of the multitudes, Jesus took the matter even further, speaking of himself as being the bread of life, whom God sent to save all who come to him, providing 
for all who believe, heavenly food that will not only overflow but last forever. Hear what he says. This is the bread, talking about himself, that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The truth of the matter is that in our land, just as it was in Israel, there is a famine. There's plenty to eat for dinner, but there's a spiritual famine all around us that isn't being and can't be satisfied by the world. Take this as an example. Here's a rather lengthy quote, the words of a non-Christian journalist named Bernard Levin, who died in 2004. He wrote this. Countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, together with such non-material blessings as a happy family, and yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside them and that however much food and drink they pour into it, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff within it, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends parade around the edges of it, it still aches. This is telling stuff, and pretty much right on the money. Reminding us of what the French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, writer and theologian Blaise Pascal said way back somewhere between 1623 and 1662. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. Hear what the prophet Jeremiah had to say about this long ago. He said, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here in this second story, God showed compassion by feeding his prophets in a time of famine. But the story also tells us it's possible to have that inner vacuum filled by feeding on the one who is the bread of life, and that's Jesus. By putting your trust in him alone, in an age where there are plenty of other false solutions offered and numerous idols that would lure any seeker away into dead-end paths. That's how it was in Elisha's time. And strangely to say how it will be until the end. With the gospel, like the flower in the pot, like the salt in the spring in chapter 2, the gospel, the only cure for all who would take and receive it and believe it. And those who do not only find life, they also feed on the bread of heaven and are fully satisfied. So what then about these back-to-back events in the life of Elisha? The first highlighting the dangers that come when extra ingredients are added to the gospel and the second highlighting the blessings of satisfaction found in staying with the gospel 
with both events set against a background of rising idolatry, which was the main factor in the spiritual decline of the nation. And what of the nation in which we live? Let's pause for a moment and look around at the world in which we live. Have you noticed lately how this world has become so dominated by this idea that everything that has any link at all to the Judeo-Christian ethic, let alone the church, ought to be headed for the scrap heap? Look at the fuss made over the Lord's Prayer being said in Parliament here in Victoria. Look at all the fuss made about the religion question on the census, as if there was some conspiracy to keep no religion down at the bottom of options in order that government policy might be governed accordingly. See, nothing much changes, does it? Our world and Elisha's world are so comparable, and so the dangers they faced in terms of idolatry, which leads to compromise, are ever before us too. And why is compromise such a danger when it comes to the gospel? Because the road we're called to walk is not broad but narrow. It does not encompass all views where everything can be watered down and made to fit under the one banner where Baal and God are equals. The word of God is uncompromising in its content and uncompromising in its demands. It calls us to follow him who cared not for popular opinions or the praise of men. And that's a hard call. And it is, as G.K. Chesterton once wrote, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Hear then Jeremiah 6.16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Have you found that path? It's the path of the gospel, the path that leads us to Elisha, who points us to Jesus and salvation and life found in him. It's the path found by taking God at his word. Find salvation in him. And you will also find satisfaction in him who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And that truth is enough. That truth saves and it satisfies. The old paths are the safe paths. All other ground is sinking sand. None but Christ can satisfy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we think about these incidents from the life of Elisha, we thank you that once again they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who comes and brings the truth of your word to us, who makes clear what has long been hidden, that salvation is a gift that comes to us by grace through faith, and that faith is directed towards him the one who said, I am the living bread who came down from heaven. We thank you 
that you have given us this in your word to encourage us today, that we might feed on him, feed and find salvation, and feed and find satisfaction, and know that you are able to multiply eternal blessings to us. We ask that you would help us to put our hope and trust in him, even in difficult days, even in trying times, even in a world where your word is not revered or loved. Please help us stay with the old paths and find the safe way in them, the way of trusting your word. We pray and ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.